faith. Let's pray. Father, as we have sung earlier today, we, we need you. The more we see ourselves, the more we look at the darkness of our hearts, the more we realize our weaknesses, the more we realize our proclivities toward idolatry, toward selfishness, toward our own wanting our own kingdom. Lord, we need you. And we thank you that you are abundantly available to help in our time of need. And that you are a saving God, a rescuing God, a gracious God toward us, a God who is slow to anger, a God who puts up with us again and again and again. We thank you that our Savior has shown us the greatness of your love. We pray, Lord, today that you might open our eyes more clearly to see his love for us in the gospel. And may we, Lord, have hearts that are inclined more and more to see that love lived out in our day-to-day life. For the glory of your name is why we're praying these things, Lord. We want people to be impressed with you, not with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by just addressing the fact of why are we going through, week after week, a long list of one another commands that we find in New Testament. These are what we call the reciprocal, which means one another, reciprocal commands that talk about what love really means and what love looks like in the context of true biblical fellowship. And I do that to go through, I've come up with three reasons. There probably could be another 10 more, but this is just briefly for introductory purposes. The first reason as to why we want to look at a sermon series like this and examine the one another commands is Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, you shall love your neighbor, is the second commandment, second grace commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. What's that saying? He's saying that loving your neighbor is the second most important duty we have to God. And studying these reciprocal commands, it is my prayer, my hope, that we will learn what is involved in honoring God by the living out and properly expressing the love that he desires his people to show to our neighbors, to real people, to the real situations in life. That's the way to honor God, is to love him and love our neighbor. Secondly, another reason we're studying these things is because Jesus commanded his followers, this very important command, love one another, even as I have loved you, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How are they going to know? If you have love for one another. So one of the most effective ways that we as a church bears witness to Christ. You say, we need need to be more of a witnessing church. Well, one of the ways we witness that we belong to Jesus Christ is when we live out the reciprocal commands in the context of a church fellowship. And so therefore, when we fail in living out these reciprocal mans, we misrepresent the gospel to people. And we also misrepresent our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, and his grace to us, shown to us in the gospel. A third reason, again, very quickly, is we study these reciprocal commands in the New Testament. And in studying them, we are confronted with an abundance of obvious evidence that we fail to properly practice these commands. It seems to me if you're very, if you have any, at least a grain of humility in you, 
as you look at this long list of commands, you will begin to realize that you desperately, just like I do, you desperately need a Savior. The more we look at these commands, we will see that the gospel is designed to give good news to people like you and me who have to admit we are selfish people, ultimately. We are people who love ourselves more than we really love other people. That's the way we're naturally inclined. And so Jesus Christ, in the gospel, gives us this wonderful demonstration of what love really involves. It is Jesus who gave himself for his bride, the church. Not when the church was all wonderful and put together and beautiful and and everything um, perfect in its place. No, he gave himself for his bride when she was in great need of help, falling far short. And he didn't just come and talk about love to his bride. He comes and he demonstrates that kind of love. He is putting into practice the self-sacrificial giving that love really entails. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, it seems to me, is going to provide to us, if we look at this long list of commands, it's only the gospel that's going to provide to us transformative incentives in our hearts for us to lay down our lives for each other. Instead of trying to gain control over other people or other situations, instead of trying to impress people with how good you are or how, how uh, together you seem to be in order to try to somehow gain their approval, or to somehow try to gain credit with God by doing as much as you can to try to do these things. No, we're not called to do that. We, we are going to call, we're called to love other people out of a love for God, a love for Christ, out of, a, out of a sense of gratitude that Christ has shown me love first. I'm so amazed by that. Therefore, I am, I am more inclined to have a heart that's willing to show grace and love to others around me. Now, I'll say all that just to lay the groundwork, and here we are now with another command. So let's make our attention to Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, find your way there to page 1392 or click on your little tablet or whatever you're using, your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4. So the focus of this morning is a reciprocal command that's found not only in this text, but it's going to be found in another text. We'll look at that later, also in the book of Colossians. So let's look at the first Six verses. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, if you were in my Sunday school class or if you know anything about uh, connecting words, we have a connecting word here, I therefore. You really should stop and you should read chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. We won't take the time to do that. But if you really understand why he's reaching this conclusion you have to understand everything he said about the gospel in the first three chapters there's a lot he has said we won't go into all that verse two the, the, the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience showing forbearance to one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace there is one body one spirit just as also they were called in one hope of your calling one lord one faith one baptism one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now when we talk about forbearance, forbearing other people, one another in love, I'd like to suggest that what we're talking about is really patiently putting up with someone. Patiently putting up with a situation that may not be easy or particularly enjoyable. 
To bear, forbear with someone is to restrain your, your uh, impulse to perhaps take action in some way out of the moment of what's happening there, to put somebody in their place, for example, or to come, come with some sort of response that is going to give to somebody, you, you become annoyed at them, and so you're going to respond out of annoyance to them, and you're going to give them a piece of your mind. To forbear means you, you hold that back, you restrain that. Perhaps someone has, instead of giving them a harsh word, uh, you're going to give them a word that is going to be a little less harsh and be a little more selective in how you say those words. It could be a response to someone who has a weakness, someone who has gotten into some sort of failure. They have failed to do something they should have done or done it incorrectly. Maybe it's someone that has an idiosyncrasy, an annoyance. I remember years ago, one of the most annoying things I remember growing up as a kid was one of our elders in the church that I grew up in. A single man, wonderful man, godly man. But every time he would talk up front, which was fairly often, he would jingle his change in his pocket. And he must have had about $4 of change in there, plus his keys, and I don't know how much other metal things he had there. It would make the biggest racket in the world. I couldn't hear a word he was saying, listen to all that change jingling around. Idiosyncrasy. Put up with it. Just forbear that. Get past it. And if you know anything about people, we all have our little annoying habits, don't we? This is what he's talking about. And it also could involve putting up with someone's differing preference over some secondary matter, which we disagree over some issues that Christians disagree over. So let's look a little bit about, I want to answer three questions about this idea of being forbearing toward one another. The first question is, why is it necessary? Why is it essential? Secondly, when is forbearance not appropriate? There are some limitations to this command, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And lastly, how is forbearance to be applied in everyday lives? How do we apply this down to where we live? <clears throat> okay, first of all, why is it necessary and essential? <clears throat> well, the first answer is very obvious, and that is forbearance is necessary because none of us, at least as far as I know, none of us is perfect. Now, some of you may think you're perfect, but uh, I just want to assure you uh, that is not the case. And one of the ways that we discover that very clearly is whenever God, in his wisdom and his graciousness, may bless you to become a parent, you soon learn that your world of having things the way you like them, of having sort of order and having this, uh, things run the way you sort of like them to run, you're used to that, you find that with children come on the scene, there's a need now all of a sudden for a lot of forbearance. Why? Because one of the characteristics of small children is they have and behave in childish ways. They're children. And they naturally are what? Careless. And so in their behavior, they will spill drinks. They will not intentionally drop things. Maybe you've had your cell phone in your kid's hand and they've dropped that phone. Or they, like a magnet, they're attracted to mud puddles. And you're like, what is with this kid? If your world is designed to be neat, they will sort of challenge that desire of your part. But a parent needs to understand that forbearance is one of the ways <clears throat> we express love to people who are imperfect, people who are messy, people who are disordered, people who have all sorts of 
challenges that they have yet to learn because they're children. Oh, I've been thinking through some memories of people who showed forbearance toward me and people like me at my age. <clears throat> and I'm going back to the sixth grade and I'm recalling a time when we had a band in our sixth grade elementary class. You could call it a band. I'm not sure really it was a band. It was more or less a bunch of people who brought their instruments and we made a lot of noise. But, um, you know, elementary band teacher would show up and he had a tremendous amount of forbearance. Because if you've ever heard kids learning instruments, it's really quite an interesting sound because the children, none of the kids had skills on these instruments. We're just learning. And so you hear this cacophony of squeaking clarinets. I don't know if you ever heard those, but the slightly flat saxophones and you hear the, the loud blaring trumpets, which was me at the time, and you, you all of these different sounds of violinists. Maybe you've ever heard someone learning to play a violin and they're just not on the right note exactly. And it's just off and oh, it's just painful to listen to. But they're budding musicians. And you have to remember what? They're in process. They're just beginning. And so we accommodate that. We allow that. We forbear with their imperfectly played music, which includes squeaking and off pitch and all these out-of-tune notes that are played. And so the truth is that inexperienced children don't always get things exactly done correctly. They don't always perform with the skill level that you would hope that they would. Why? Because they're still gaining those skills, whether it's potty training or or, or trying their shoes or dressing themselves. I can remember a couple of times our kids dress themselves, come down, they got their shirt on backwards or inside out, you know, or weird socks that don't match. You understand that, that they're just kids. So what is forbearance saying? Forbearance says, my love for you allows room for you to fail, to learn, and to grow. Forbearing love sees past these inadequacies sometimes and says, you know, I see that you're in process. So therefore, I'm going to forbear you where you are right now. Let me just also add on to this. When we think about parenting, we think about God and how God does deal with us with great amount of forbearance. You know, we are such slow learners, spiritually speaking, aren't we? Think about it. I know I am. It takes me many, many times to learn something. And even then, I still need to learn it again and be reminded of that particular principle of learning to walk by faith. So our progress in holiness of life, our progress in godly living, it's gradual. It's incremental. It's slow step by step with a couple of down steps and then a couple more steps up. We don't arrive automatically. Turn with me in Matthew 17, just for a second, page 1164 in your Bible, Pew Bible, Matthew 17. Interesting incident where Jesus, now mind you, has had a, a very intensive um, spiritual tutoring process that he's begun with these 12 followers who are in this little spe uh, specific group. And he's got these guys and they are with him every day, night and day, and they're doing life together and he is instructing them, teaching them, saying, listen, you've got to make sure you understand that this is the way in which your spiritual ministry and what it means to serve me, what it means to, to follow me and to, and to be involved in people's lives, this is what it's like. 
So he comes to a situation where his disciples have been sent off to do some ministry. They come back and all these people are criticizing him, saying, hey, listen, we got a guy that's got a lot of problems here, a lot of troubles. He's still got clearly under demonic influence and they have had no effect upon him. They have failed to really do anything to help this guy. In Matthew 17, 17, what does Jesus say? The problem is these disciples have tried to do these things, but they have forgotten to pray. They have become more relying on techniques and doing it according to what they think would be the best means, what, what would seem to be the best in their mind, instead of praying and saying, Lord, would you work this situation? Reminding that it is God's power at work, not them. Matthew 17, 17. Jesus says, how long shall I forbear or put up with you? What an interesting question he raises. How long am I going to forbear, put up with you? Implying what? Implying, I have been putting up with you. I've been forbearing with you a long time here. There have been many lessons. There's been many things I've been trying to teach you, and you're still not getting it. One of the main lessons that he's tried to repeat to them again and again is that transformative gospel ministry is dependent on Christ. It's not dependent on you. It's not all up to you. You can't change somebody. You don't set people free. You don't sanctify people. You don't bring them people into, into liberation. It is Christ. It is the gospel. Anyway, wouldn't it have been interesting had Jesus responded to that situation by saying, and said, had he not been forbearing and he had said, you guys just got another F. You have flunked. You have failed again. You're not getting it. You don't show much promise thus far. Imagine if he, and those are all true statements, but imagine if that's the way he'd responded to them. What does that do to their spirits? And where's grace in that kind of response? So Jesus says, well, how long will I do this? The answer is, as long as they needed it. <laughs> that's the answer. Because he is so gracious. Jesus did maintain a careful balance of trying to point his disciples to high standards. He does hold to high standards. At the same time, he patiently endured those who were in process, those who were still growing in their spiritual lives. There's an example in the Old Testament as well of God being a patient, forbearing God. When we read in Isaiah chapter 42, a very interesting statement in which God says to his people, Verse 14, 42, 14, I have kept silent for a long time. <laughs> I like that. Some of us who are quick to speak, some of us who are quick to offer that critical comment, some of us who are quick to say a comment that will just be like a dagger that really hurts because we really haven't thought through what we're saying and we're just annoyed and frustrated and we just speak out of our, our anger at that moment. But God says what? I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. What's he saying there? He's been forbearing toward them. God in love has compassion on his children. He understands, he knows our limitations and our shortcomings due to our immaturity. So the first answer to the question why we need forbearance is because we're not perfect and because we're growing and we're in process. The second reason that forbearance is essential is because in order to maintain any kind of closeness with other people and to have any kind of connection with them on an ongoing, sustained basis, 
dealing with people who are different than you and who are not the same as you, who don't see things the same as you, don't respond the same as you, in order to have any kind of cohesiveness and unity, you've got to be a forbearing kind of person. Go back to our text there in Ephesians chapter 4. You'll notice verse 3. Notice the context of this call to forbearance. Paul is exhorting these believers in this church of Ephesus, and he's saying, listen, I want you to maintain, verse 3, I want you to make sure you preserve what God has already put together here. He's put all these different people. Some are rich, some are poor, some are well-educated, some are not, some are Gentiles, some are Jews, all different kinds of people. I'll put them all together in the body of Christ, this local church. He says, listen, I want you to preserve the unity that's already here. The Spirit is already created. It's a living, vital, internal unity among true believers. And Paul is urging them to make sure not to destroy that. But unity can be destroyed if everyone is expected to be the same. Unity does not remain in place if we insist on everybody being uniformly identical to each other. It's not going to happen. And Paul keeps reminding them, listen, there's all different kinds of people and members of this body. And therefore... See them as different, but they are part of needed in the body of Christ. It's interesting that forbearance, a forbearing kind of love, takes a mature believer, and he in response to a person who has, let's say, an immature believer who has all this hyper zeal. You've seen him, right? A young believer who's just ready to go out and conquer the world for Christ. And they're out there just doing all this stuff and becoming probably obnoxious to most people around them in their zeal for the gospel which can sometimes put us to shame how, they, how bold they are for the gospel, but sometimes they need to be reined in a little bit. And so it's a mature believer who is going to be forbearing, enduring the hyperzeal of the immature believer. It's the stronger disciple who's going to bear up under the sensitive conscience of a weaker believer whose conscience doesn't give him the freedom that the older believer, more mature believer has. This kind of unity is going to be sustained only if certain heart attitudes are in place. Notice how Paul is going to include those, and we'll talk more about that in Colossians chapter 3, but it involves kind of attitudes of humility and meekness and patience. Because if things are going to remain close together among people who are different, that kind of unity, selfishness and pride will rip that apart. Because pride will say, it's my way or no way. Or Pride will say, it's got to be this way because this is the best because that's what I think and my preferences are more important than yours. And selfishness always is disruptive. It divides. And God in salvation is saying what? I have united people who are different in the gospel. I've brought them together. And where sin had separated them, I want the gospel to bring them together and hold them together. So... One of the things that needs in part of that holding together is because there's going to be a little bit of bouncing around the closer you get to someone because of not of lack of disagreement. We're not the same. We don't see the same. How many of you have ever gone on a go-kart car on some sort of track somewhere as a sort of recreational thing? How many of you have done that? Okay, a number of you have survived those days. All right. I was going to use bumper cars, but they have too many evil intentions of the people who drive them, so I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to just talk about go-karts. But people who design these little go-karts know that the drivers usually are not fully experienced drivers, right? They give an opportunity for someone who's rather young to drive this thing on a very limited course with very strong guardrails. 
and what? Effective bumpers. The bumpers on these things are usually quite, uh, allow, allowing for quite a bit of absorption of impact. Bumpers mean what? They understand that the driver of this car is going to what? Hit something or someone probably he shouldn't be doing. It accommodates, it's accommodating the fact that there's a need for a cushion of people who don't get it just right. Have you ever seen the guy who drives the car and they don't realize there's a brake in this thing that comes slamming into the, the, end, the end thing where you're supposed to stop? You know, they just don't even stop. They go bang into the car in front of them. The guy running the place is like, what are you doing? You know, it's like, you're not supposed to do that. But that happens in the Christian life, doesn't it? We have disagreements. We have strong, strong opinions with other Christians. And so we, we have this bouncing of two hearts against each other. It could happen in marriage. It happens at churches. It happens in any kind of close uh, con contact relationship. And rather than having war and strife and enmity that is rooted primarily in pride, which says there is no give for that, you're going to get what you deserve, a forbearing person, a forbearing heart, a patient heart, a heart full of love will seek to try to what? absorb some of that, endure some of the inconvenience of that, and just say to myself, i got to remember the big picture here. People are not where they should be and not, have not come as far as they probably will be. Therefore, let's show them some grace, show them some slack. As I've thought about this, I have been, again, deeply thankful for the people in my life growing up who showed me a lot of forbearance. <laughs> and you, really, but we'll talk about that in a second. I think about the time when I came home from second or third year of Bible college. I was getting tons of good biblical teaching in my head, but I had very little experience in terms of ministering to other people, in terms of speaking or preaching or, t or whatever. And my home church was so gracious, they allowed room for me and other inexperienced believers to grow. And I remember them giving me a summer where I did an internship in their summer one year and I, I remember that I, I did some of the preaching over that summer and I'm thinking to myself those sermons I'm so glad they were not recorded I mean they were just terrible I remember thinking I have I have all this notes and all these thoughts and I'm going to share them and it's going to be at least a 40 minute sermon of great profound impact it was nine minutes or less and that was a mercy really to the people who were listening I'm sure but they were did what? Afterwards, they said, oh, thank you so much for sharing us what you've been learning in the Word. They didn't say, thanks for that excellent sermon. That would have been a lie. But they were forbearing toward me. They realized I was on, the, on the, the beginning of things. And you folks have put up with me over the years. Not all sermons are great sermons. I understand that. But the point is what? Forbearance says there's room for people who are not, have not arrived yet we still are going to what? Put up with you and encourage you along the way. All right, I think I've read enough reasons as to why it's important. We understand that. Let's move to the second question, and that is, what are the limits of forbearance? Or another question would ask, when is forbearance not appropriate? Because it's not appropriate all the time in every situation. And one of these is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in which we read of an example of what I would call improper forbearance. Unbiblical forbearance, if you will. Here we have the church of Corinth, the first church of Corinth, and they are very proud of their membership. They're proud of the people who have attended their church, and they just think it's great that they have all these people who have gathered there in such a city that 
celebrates all kinds of looseness, uh, morally speaking. And so they've got a member of their church that's not just secretly going on here, but he is knowingly, everybody knows it's public knowledge that this guy is involved in incestuous immorality. Paul says it's even of the kind of nature that even pagans don't do this kind of inappropriateness. But instead of confronting the professed believer out of love, urging him to repent, they boasted about how tolerant they were as a church. They were talking about, well, you know, he's been a part of our church all these years. His mother went here. His father went here. You know, his, his great aunt gave the building years ago. So we're just going to keep him part of our church. They don't do that. He says, you've been priding yourself over your permissiveness. And they, rather than following the clear teachings of Jesus in this church, they've been following in the first church of Corinth their feelings. They've been following their own, uh, their own desire to have, to, to have this welcoming environment where no one is ever confronted over their sin, flagrant, overt, repeated, unrepented of sin. Not just a minor goof up but ongoing, overt, flagrant sin. It's a scandalous situation. And this was not the time to show forbearance to this brother in Christ, a professing brother in Christ. But Paul insists that this unrepentant brother who professes faith in Christ, he should be lovingly removed from the membership role. Not as an attempt to try to say, we're going to show you one thing or another. No, it's a way of what? Calling the brother into repentance. Showing him the seriousness of his sin. So Paul's concerned with that the brother be, that he repent, that he be restored. And that, the, and that the influence of this brother and the example that he was leading of this immoral behavior in the context of the local church that was going to spread to the church, it was going to cause an erosion of biblical standards and it would destroy the name and reputation of Jesus Christ in the community. He really has a passion for God's name here. That's what's driving him to respond the way he does. So he says, forbearance is not appropriate in those situations where there is unrepentant, ongoing, flagrant, sinful actions. It can't, you can't bring church discipline against somebody who has a bad attitude. Okay, You can't measure it, you can't define it, you can't observe it. But we're talking about some action in which they're involved in. So one of them is, is not taking action to confront or hold a brother accountable and lovingly seek to bring that brother to repentance and to restoration. The second one, another example would be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Maybe you want to turn there. I'm going to read this text. Forbearance is also unsuitable in a second situation. One is flagrant, obvious, unrepentant sin among a professing believer. The second one is 2 Corinthians 11 verses 19 and 20. Paul writes to the first church in Corinth. For you, members of the church, first church of Corinth, being so wise. Now, this is all in quotes. He is using sarcasm here, big time. For you, being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. Who are these foolish? For you bear with anyone, even if he enslaves you. If he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face. Paul is just expressing his sense of, un he just cannot believe the fact that these members of this church are 
allowing and aligning themselves with these false teachers, these false apostles who have come in. They're teaching a false gospel. They are questioning Paul's credentials, the man who established the church, who brought them the gospel and got things going, and they're questioning him, and they're becoming more loyal to these false pseudo-apostles than they are to Paul. And Paul is very concerned. So he writes this epistle, not only to defend himself against these false accusations which have been alleged against him, but to preserve the church from false teaching and false teachers. So Paul says, listen, you should not be forbearing people who come and teach you a false gospel. It's not appropriate. He says you're going to be deceived and taken advantage of. He corrects them for this kind of false or unbiblical forbearance. You need to there are big times when you must hold yourselves back from taking a stand. It's not appropriate to, to hold yourself back when there's, you need to take a stand against false teaching. That's true. But there are other times, of course, where you need to be slow in responding to a brother or sister in Christ who's still learning, who's still developing in their understanding of, the, of biblical truth. They might say something's a little off. And so you say, okay, brother, let me just show you in the scriptures how this will help you understand this matter here. That's being forbearing to someone. But the biblical balance we're trying to say is there are some times where you just say, I cannot forbear this any longer. It's not love to do that. It is really weakness. It is dishonoring to God. It's not really out of a heart that is honoring to God and honoring to this person. And may I just say this. As I'm aware that we have reached the point now in our culture and in our, the life of our, church, life of our country where there have been now the legalization of things which are clearly dishonoring to God, I just want to let it be known, I will not be coerced into ever performing a wedding that is not honoring to God. Because the gospel is, is communicating what the true nature of marriage is, and to say, I'm going to sanction and put God's blessing on a relationship that is dishonoring to the pattern which God has established, is to what? Dishonor God. So there will be a time which, if it's necessary, I will be involved in civil disobedience. I will not be coerced into doing something that is dishonoring to God and to put God's sanction, God's blessing, and his affirmation upon it. And all of us need to face that day. We will have to say, in love, I am not going to be a part of this. I am going to withdraw myself from that. I will not be coerced into that. But I do so not in an argumentative fashion. I'm not going to scream at you. I'm not going to hate you and show you any kind of, of uh, a violent response in return, but I will just hold to my convictions, seeking to honor Christ, and pay whatever the consequences may be. So I think it's important we understand what forbearance in that context and the limits of that is. And now, as things get steamier and hotter, we come to point number three. Hang in there. The questionnaire we ask is how is forbearance to be applied to everyday life? Colossians 3 here is so helpful. Would you turn in your Bible there? This is the other text I've been alluding to. I've been holding off getting there. But Colossians chapter 3, again, another one of these texts where you've got to read what's preceded this whole passage. His arguments are flowing based on first two chapters of the book, how he unpacks the gospel and celebrates all who Christ is and what he's done for us. And then we come to chapter 3 in which he talks about if you've been raised up with Christ or since you have been raised up with Christ, chapter 3, verse 1, keep seeking the things above. Set your mind on those things above. 
You've died with Christ. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ, what he's done for you, how he has paid for your sin and set you free from all that shame and guilt. And then he comes to verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. That's an act in which you say, in light of who I am in Christ, in light of what God says is true about me in the gospel, I therefore am going to now act and react differently based on what is true, based on what God has said uh, is true of me in Christ. So my heart is going to be focusing on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Look at verse 13, bearing with one another. Again, I don't want to make too much of this, but if you study carefully this text, you're going to notice, if you make careful observations, that the idea of forbearing one another is actually a dependent clause. Not to get too technical, it's a participle, which means it is acting like a verb, but it's dependent upon the main verb, and the main verb in this text is what? Verse 1, walk worthy of the calling for with which you are called. Verse 12, put on a compassionate, kind, humble heart. Those are the main verbs. How do we do that? We do it by acting in ways that show I have compassion and patience and humility in my heart, and therefore here comes a forbearing, forbearing response. The loving response of forbearance comes out of a heart that has been so amazed by grace. God has shown me such forbearance. You say, how has God shown you forbearance? My friend, I could preach a whole other sermon on Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. If you're a person who's here and you say, well, I'm still trying to understand this Christian faith. I'm still trying to understand how it all comes together. Let me just remind you, you think, well, I've got lots of time to figure it out. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't really need to be in a hurry in this regard. You don't realize that God is showing you much grace, much mercy, much kindness, much forbearance. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, Romans, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is supposed to lead you to repentance? Living the way you live and not caring about God and doing whatever you want and sinning against all kinds of people and all kinds of situations and living for yourself, you think, well, it seems to work well in my life. My life's not that bad off. My friend, don't be fooled. What he's saying here is God has not given you what you deserve thus far. He's been forbearing toward you. He's been absorbing and putting up with your foolishness and your sin and your defiance of his right to be the king and Lord of your life. Verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every person according to his deeds. Don't be fooled to think that because God hasn't done something, he won't do something in response to your sin. He's forbearing toward you. But that won't last forever. What it means is that God, by grace, is dealing with you in a patient way, waiting for you to repent. And for those of us who are Christians, we are people who now, because he has dealt with us in grace, because of the gospel reality of who we are now in Christ, he's saying that grace has lifted you up and given you these privileges. Now you're to live out of those privileges, how you deal with new people, with your new identity, and you put up with things that are annoying to you things that wear you out, the things that are bothersome that people do in your life. 
People have done some things perhaps to provoke you. They may have said something to you knowing full well that's going to get him. That's going to put, her, that's going to put her in her place. And they say a comment to you knowing full well this is a little barb, a little kickback on that one. So what do you do? How do you respond? Well, forbearance says what? My love for Christ, my love for this person means that God by his spirit is going to help me not immediately give him a piece of my mind. <laughs> not to respond in kind and say the exact same right back at him and think about something that's un, uh, un, un, um, complimentary to them. We try to delay as long we can, as long as we can on rebuking someone and coming down hard on them in terms of how we respond to some of their immature ways. We give them some grace. We give them a little room for making failures. Grace that God has shown to us says, I'm going to graciously deal with the people around me who are not perfect. Try to understand, why is that person doing that, which is so inappropriate? Trying to understand, are they physically ailing? Are they a person who's disadvantaged? Are they a person who just hasn't been taught like you have? They don't know what you know? Rather than dismissing their brother or sister, you patiently instruct them. You lovingly express your sincere interest in them. You tell them that you'll pray for them. You show them that, that there is indeed more clarity on this matter in the scriptures. I think about marriage relationship and how many of us find ourselves trying to deal with annoying things. Little things that end up becoming escalating into big things. Because there's a lack of grace. There's a lack of forbearance. Some of you know that when you share your life with someone in close contact, there ends up being somebody who snores. Someone has annoying difficulties that they have to deal with. Some people have limitations physically so that when you're walking together with your spouse, do you just walk pell-mell fast you can down the road? Say, well, you'll just have to catch up with me as best you can. Deal with it. Come on. What's your problem? That's not a forbearing kind of love. Forbearing love says, listen, I'm going to slow down. We're going to walk together here, even though I could walk twice as fast. It's amazing how practical forbearing love is. One of the things you begin to understand is that we react oftentimes with a heart of pride when we begin to say what? I'm taking action on this without even thinking it through. I'm just going to say what I'm going to say. I'm going to get what I want, and I'm going to Get this person to finally do what they're supposed to be doing, and I'm going to show them what they deserve. That's not a heart of love. And guess what? First Church of Corinth had a problem with what? Somebody who owed somebody some money, apparently, on some kind of business deal, rather than sitting down with some godly people, rather than saying, brother and sister, we've got to work this thing out, and we've got to think what the gospel says to us regarding finding what is the, the most appropriate way to resolve this matter with it, among Christians, one of them just gets up and says, I'm taking you to court. I'm suing you. Again, the, repu the reputation of the gospel, reputation of Christ in the community, got people who are saying what? I hope you rot in jail till you give me that last penny you owe me. Where's forbearing love in that? It's sad, but it happens. So Paul says to the people in Corinthians, listen here, folks. If you refuse, don't, he says, aren't you willing to be wronged for the gospel? Are you only motivated by your rights? You're only motivated by justice and getting what's yours? Where's your heart of compassion? Is that how God has dealt with you? 
I hope you're saying no in your heart and mind because that's the truth. May I give one more practical example, and that is with families. Living with your family can be one of the challenging, most challenging things, particularly on vacation. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Where all of us who love each other so much, and in today's world, where everyone's off doing their own thing, more and more. People rarely are interacting with each other and talking on a significant level and dealing with each other. Everybody's got their own little things, their own little entertainment, their own little music, their own uh, whatever they're doing, they do it all by themselves. And they're really cut off from each other. You get them in a car and go for a long trip. Now we have an experiment in who has forbearance and who does not. He's touching me. Put the window down. No, I don't like the wind blowing. I don't like that radio station. I mean, I can remember all the comments we heard years ago when I was in the car. There were four kids, two parents in a station wagon, folks. It was tight and it was hot. But what happens in those situations? We become aware of what's in our hearts. Those situations reveal what's already there, what's in us, how you respond to that situation. Do you allow people who are imperfect a little bit of putting up with that imperfection? These are the wonderful ways of the gospel. It's beautiful the way God can help us in responding to those around us. May I show you one more thing here before we conclude regarding this idea of biblical forbearance? This goes beyond just the reciprocal. This goes into how do I deal with people who are not in the faith and who are responding to me in ways that are making life difficult for me. In a sense, they are treating me unjustly because of my allegiance to Christ. And I believe this is where we're going as a culture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul had to flee Thessalonica and several towns because he was preaching a gospel that was not popular. It was offensive. It was something that was highly... Uh, controversial among the spiritual leaders of the day. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul affirms his audience, these believers. He says, we speak proudly of your perseverance and your faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure, in which you forbear, in which you what? Put up with, in which you absorb. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 12, Paul writes, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. What's he saying? These are examples of the idea of some kind of love we show to unbelievers is that we suffer for doing what's right. We don't always demand getting even from people and saying, listen here, you don't know what you're talking about, and I'm going to point it out to you until you're, you know, and I'm going to take matters into my own hands and make you understand what I'm saying. No, he doesn't say that. There are times in which we suffer for doing what's right. We go down the path of affliction, not because we've done something wrong, but because we're doing things that are honoring to God. He says, at times we need to hold ourselves back from demanding that God just let us have permission to vent all of our anger and frustration and you don't spew forth cursing to people who have mistreated you. But biblical forbearance calls us to bear up under these circumstances, to remember what Christ did, go back to the gospel and how he showed what forbearing love looks like. He entrusted himself to his Father. He continued to do what is right, First Peter. And the prayer is, Lord, as we live in a more and more intolerant world for the Christian faith and for Christians who are simply following the, the clear teaching of Scripture, imperfectly, but we, that is our hope and desire, 
Lord, our prayer is give us a love for the unsaved around us that we will endure some of their mockery, some of their hatred, some of their persecution, some of their intimidation, some of their political power that they might wield against us. Lord, give us a heart that says, I will put up with this because you have put up with me in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are such an amazingly forbearing God. Lord, how we realize that had we been treated as we deserve first thing on, we would have been a goner. We would have had no reason to ever be hopeful of anything beyond that moment. But Lord, we thank you that you have put up with us. You are still putting up with us. And some of us, Lord, have been trying to avoid dealing with you. We have been putting off the idea of, of surrendering to you. We have been putting off the idea of, of yielding ourselves and, and laying down our lives before you and surrendering our attempts to try to, to improve ourselves. But Lord, I pray today that you might give us the incentive to repent, having looked at the greatness of your forbearance, that we would not wait and postpone, Lord, dealing with Christ and following him, placing our faith in Christ and turning from our sins and confessing him as Lord. And Lord, for others of us, I pray that you would inculcate within us a humbling from the gospel, that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we should, Lord. Help us to see your gracious dealings with us and to see that translated, Lord, in being patient with people around us, putting up with things that are annoying and difficult and oftentimes exasperating. Help us, Lord, to allow room for growth in those around us who are further behind us. Lord, work in our hearts, we pray, this kind of love for the glory of your great name. No matter what, how difficult it becomes, no matter how much we have to suffer for your name, Lord, give us a loving heart like Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.